This is Our American Stories, and we love talking sports on this show. And today we have the story of Mary Lou Retton. And Faith brings it to us. She's done stories on other influential female athletes as well, including Chris Everett and Babe Diedrichson Zaharias. Take it away, Faith. At the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles, California, little Mary Lou Wren of the small town of Fairmont, West Virginia, at the age of 16, stole the show as America's sweetheart. Her joy and love for the sport of gymnastics was seen through her contagious smile. Born January 24, 1968 in Fairmont, West Virginia, a small coal mining town in the hills, she grew into the perfect gymnast body type of 4 foot 9 inches and 93 pounds. It was said of her that 80 pounds of that was heart. Her inspiration? None other than Nadia Comaneci. At the 1976 Olympics in Montreal, Mary Lou watched Nadia in awe. Thankfully, her dreams were met with drive. The summer of 1976, and I was seven years old. I remember watching and being glued to the set, watching this little girl. Her name was Nadia. She was from this very different country called Romania. That's what I want to do, and there's an actual name for it. It's called gymnastics. I'm going to go do that. I'm going to the Olympics, and I'm going to win the medal. I was doing gymnastics and loving every minute of it. I mean, I would sleep in my leotard. I was at a competition in Reno, Nevada. Bella was not in this country very long. The man who coached my inspiration, Nadia, to be a champion was talking to me. So I'm just like in awe. Mary Lou was different. She was, she was a joy of watching because her amazing strength, the amazing explosiveness, Mary Lou, knew my name. You come to me, I make you Olympic champion. Are you kidding me? So it was a chance of a lifetime for me. Mary Lou spent two years apart from her family in high school, working ridiculous hours and powering through grueling workouts. She put all that she was into her gymnastics career. She moved from her small town to train under Bella Caroli in Houston, Texas. One of the best gymnastics coaches in the world. The same man who had coached her idol, Nadia. Bella was a ruthless coach. Slow to give praise, quick to criticize. He wanted Mary Lou to not just be good, he wanted her to be great, perfect. And Mary Lou loved every second of it. Retton worked tirelessly. She wanted to go to the Olympics. Mary Lou's success happened early. She won the American Classic in 1983 and 1984. After winning her second American Cup, the U.S. Nationals and the U.S. Olympic Trials in 1984, Retton suffered a knee injury. After performing a floor routine at a local gymnastics center, she sat down to sign autographs when she felt her knee lock up. She was forced to undergo an operation just five weeks prior to the 1984 Summer Olympics. The very thing that she had been looking forward to her entire life. She 
she was not going to let some knee surgery stop her. So she made sure to do all that she could to get better in time. And she did. Mary Lou breezed through to the finals. Her gold medal came down to the last event. It was neck and neck between Zabo of Romania and Retin. This would be the most high-pressure performance they would ever endure. Zabo scored a 9.9 on the uneven bars. Mary Lou had the vault left. Mary Lou's vault was a particularly difficult one. She needed a 9.95 to tie for the individual all-around. She needed a perfect 10 to clinch the gold. There is the green light. The distance she gets on this particular vault is about 22 feet. She has two vaults, remember. Oh, boy. And the crowd is on their feet. What a moment for American gymnastics. I think if they don't give her a 10 here, the judges may fear for their life. That's right. They will tear the roof apart. Boy, she landed. There it is. She did it. 10, the gold medal. The gold medal goes to Mary Lou Rett. What a party they'll have in Fairmont, West what Virginia a nice tonight. Good God. After sticking the landing, she threw back her head and arms, nearly unable to contain her excitement. Everything leading up to this point had come to fruition. But after riding that high, I guess she wasn't ready to be done. So she decided to take her final vault. She has another vault and she's going to take it, huh? Well, if she does the same thing, <laughs> she does. It was no accident, folks, huh? Just to prove it. Oh, look at this. He's not tired now. No. Oh, what a tightly wrapped package of explosives. Mary Lou Perfect. Yet again. Mary Lou Retton was the first American woman to win the all-around gold in gymnastics. Right in Los Angeles, California. This was a feat that would not be reached again for another 20 years. She also earned two silver medals and two bronze at the same Olympics. Silver for the team in the vault and bronze in the uneven bars and floor exercise. Not bad. After the Olympics, she went back to compete in the American Cup. Being an Olympic champion, the stakes had risen. I can remember in 85 feeling more pressure here at McDonald's American Cup than at the Olympics because you're expected to win. The media, the press, the public say, hey, she's an Olympic champion, she should win. She won the 1985 American Cup as well, meeting and exceeding those expectations. Mary Lou Retton was the American dream. Small-town girl who had reached the top of her sport in the front of the Wheaties box. 
She retired on September 29, 1986. Mary Lou was born with hip dysplasia, which is the medical condition for a hip socket that doesn't fully cover the ball portion of the upper thigh bone. This allows the hip joint to become partially or completely dislocated. Eventually, Mary Lou had to get a full hip replacement, but never gave up on health and fitness. Even coming up with Mary Lou's way, spelled W-E-I-G-H, as a way to help women get fit and healthy. Retton went on to become a motivational speaker, an author, and a sports commentator. She married former University of Texas quarterback Shannon Kelly. Together, they had four beautiful daughters, three of which competed as gymnasts and one as a cheerleader. Mary Lou is one of the most popular Olympic athletes ever. Mary Lou's feats and charismatic personality made her a natural star. One couldn't help but fall in love with her. For some reason, her fame was not a blip on the timeline. It was lasting. She would always be America's sweetheart. This is Faith Garcia reporting to you from Our American Stories. Mary Lou Retton's story, first woman to win all-around gold in gymnastics, the first American woman in 1984 at the Los Angeles Olympics. Her story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and on this day in history, this is Spinal Tap. It was released in 1984, and I've often believed the world could be split in two ways, and that is those who've seen Spinal Tap and those who haven't. And if you haven't, see it, rent it, because it is one of the funniest movies ever made, and you don't need to have loved or liked any music to appreciate it. Here's Jesse talking about this cult classic. This is Spinal Tap, is a 1984 American rock music mockumentary comedy film written, scored by, and starring Rob Reiner, Christopher Guest, Michael McKeon, and Harry Shearer. The film portrays the fictional British heavy metal band Spinal Tap. Directed by Reiner, the movie satirizes the wild and personal behavior and musical pretensions of hard rock and heavy metal bands, as well as other rockumentaries that were released around the same time. All of the dialogue in the film was improvised, and many of the scenes focus on trivial matters being blown way out of proportion, like in this scene that portrays a prima donna rock star backstage complaining about the size of a piece of bread. Look, this, this miniature bread, it's like, I've been working with this now for about half an hour, and I can't figure out, let's say I want to the mm-hmm. bite, right? You got this. You'd like bigger bread? Exactly. I yeah. don't understand how. You could it's like fold a... this then. I mean, you could well, fold no, it. then it's half the size. No, not the bread. No, you can fold the meat. Yeah, yeah but then it then it breaks up, it breaks apart like this. You put it on the bread like this, see? But then if then you then keep it's... folding it, it keeps breaking, well, why would you keep and then you everything has to be folded, and then it's this, and I don't want this. I want large bread so that I can put this. Right. 
so then it's like this. Yeah. But this doesn't work because then it's all... Because it hangs out like that. <laughs> Look, yeah. would you be holding no, this? No, I wouldn't want to eat. I wouldn't want to put no. it in my mouth. All right, A. Exhibit, no, right. exhibit A, right. and then we move right. on to this. Harry Shearer, Rob Reiner, Christopher Guest, and Michael McKeon were given $10,000 to write the script. They made a 20-minute version of the film to better demonstrate the improvisation they had in mind. Several scenes from the demo are actually in the final movie. Here's director Rob Reiner. Chris and uh, and Michael, for years, had been improvising with these characters, these British rock and rollers, uh, in parties and stuff like that. They'd always been improvising, so uh, we said, "Well, let's do you know, we'll do we'll do a takeoff of these British rockers and we'll put them on, we'll put them in the TV show." And when we were doing the that that segment of the show, they'd improvise, you know, on the set while we were just waiting to you know do do a shot. And it was hysterical. They were in character. And we said, geez, it would be great to find a way to take these characters and do something more than just this little three-minute bit. And so that became kind of the beginnings of what ultimately became Spinal Tap. The faux documentary covers a 1982 United States concert tour by the fictional rock group Spinal Tap to promote their new album called Smell the Glove, interspersed with one-on-one interviews with the members of the group and footage of the group from previous periods in their fictitious careers. Here again is director Rob Reiner on developing the concept for the film with Harry Shearer, who plays bassist Derek Smalls in the mockumentary. Harry and I had an idea to do a, a film about roadies and what went on backstage in a rock and roll tour. We thought we could make fun and have some fun with it. And then a movie came, a name Roadie came out. We thought, okay, forget that. Meanwhile, Chris and, and, uh, and Michael had done a little short of these two rockers that you know run into each other in a hotel room and they did it on tape and we kind of gravitated back towards each other and said gee let's kind of put this together and maybe we can you know make a whole movie about these characters and 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 a tour and what goes on backstage and that kind of evolved in that way in the late 1960s rob reiner acted in bit roles in several television shows including batman the andy griffith show and the beverly hillbillies one of his first films this is Spinal Tap. Well, I mean, it wasn't a typical first-time director experience because, like I said, there was no script. And so, you know, it was all improvised and it was all shot like a documentary. So it wasn't, you know, like having to set up shots in a traditional way that a director would, you know, design a movie. I mean, we were kind of flying by the seat of our pants and, you know, improvising as we went along. We just had a basically art. We had a, an outline with an arc you know, very loose arc to the whole thing, and then we just kind of improvise the scenes and shoot it like a real tour on, you know, on band on tour and shoot a documentary, and then kind of shaped it in the, in the cutting room. It took me nine months to cut that film. So basically the writing for the film was done in the cutting room. We shot for, you know, 25, 30 days, something like that. Uh, but we had a lot, tons and tons of footage. We had, you know, the first cut of the film was seven hours long. We had like, you know four hours of a film and three hours of interview footage. Just me interviewing them in all different, you know, places. So Reiner is the director of the actual film who also plays the director of This Is Spinal Tap in the film. Reiner says his character was based on another director of a real rockumentary that was popular at the time. We also learn how the film was received by actual rock stars and critics alike. Well, my character is kind of loosely based on Martin Scorsese's character in The Last Waltz where he was in the film, you know, he kind of put himself in the film. So uh, I call myself Marty DeBerge, which was kind of a cross between Marty Scorsese and, you know, De Sica and Bergman and Fellini and put them all together. They loved it. 
They loved it. I mean, they saw themselves. And, uh, you know, I've talked to rockers over the years, and they've all seen it. And I remember one time when I was doing Princess Pride, and Sting came in to meet me for a part, and he said he'd seen the movie like 50 times. He says, every time. He says, I look at it, he says, I don't know whether to laugh or cry. And, you know, so many stories of people telling me they have worn out their, their videos on bus and on tour on the bus. They throw it on all the time. They watch it. When it first came out, people thought it was a real band. And then people don't understand why would I make a movie about a band that nobody had ever heard of and that was so bad. You know, why would you, why don't you make a movie about a good band like the Stones or something or Led Zeppelin or something like that? But uh, they, I said, they already made a movie about this. Let's said, no, it's like Saturday Night Live. You know, satire, you know, you make fun of it. Oh, okay, okay. It took a while for people to catch up to it and realize that it was a spoof. This is Spinal Tap was only a modest success upon its initial release. However, the film found greater success and a cult following after it was released on VHS. This is Our American Stories. You're listening to the story of the first major Hollywood mockumentary. This is Spinal Tap, released this day in history in 1984. And as always, all of our segments, even the fun ones and the funny ones, are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to study. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you. Visit their online classes, all 12 of them, at hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. This is Our American Stories. More on Spinal Tap after these messages. The bigger the cushion, the sweeter the portion. That's what I said. Big bottom, big bottom. Talk about bum cakes. My girl's got them. Big bottom, drive me out of my mind. How could I leave this behind? This is our American stories, and we now return to This is Spinal Tap, released on this day in history in 1984. Critics praised the film not only for its satire of the roller coaster lifestyles of rock stars, but also for its take on the nonfiction film genre. Even with a cameo from Billy Crystal, Spinal Tap still managed to trick many of its moviegoers into believing the band actually existed in real life. Even Ozzy Osbourne told Conan O'Brien that he thought This Is Spinal Tap was a documentary when he saw it in the theater. Did you go and see the movie Spinal Tap? Well, yeah, And what did you think of it? Well, the funny thing about Spinal Tap, when I went to see it, I was the only person in the audience that wasn't laughing because it really was like a documentary. So <laughs> those things actually happened. I mean, everybody was going, oh, number, th- number 11, that happened. <laughs> that happened when they got lost going to the stage. That happened. No, what you got that? lost going to the stage. Oh, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm the practical joker. When you go into these, these big shows, and it's got so and so, so and so, this one, they've got gaffer tape arrows, right. and, I, and I'm always to show changing, you which way to go. I'm always changing the arrows around. You know, so <laughs> So I end up back in the foyer going, well, where's the <laughs> So you're sitting there, everyone's laughing, you, you're thinking... I'm going, I'm going, look at this jerk here, the rock star of the year with his entourage of 9,000 people, and he's ending up back in the car park. <laughs> Having a bunch of people who thought that Spinal Tap was an actual band helped sell some albums. The actors are all competent musicians, and the soundtrack is actually them playing. 
though Harry Shearer and three other actors have only been paid $81 for merchandise sales between 1984 and 2006. Shearer filed a $125 million lawsuit against the company that now owns the film, who claims the film was never profitable. In February of 2017, Shearer and co-stars Christopher Guest, Michael McKeon, as well as the film's director, Rob Reiner, joined the lawsuit seeking $400 million in damages. $81 for 22 years. Between 1989 and 2006, the corporations have said that total income from music sales was $98. Well, $98 is about enough to buy one miniature Stonehenge. The film is on view almost constantly. It was theatrically released twice and has had lives on VHS, beta, DVD, Blu-ray, Laserdisc, and cable TV. And yet, for most of that time, according to Vivendi, it hasn't been profitable. Filing a claim like this one is neither fun nor easy. Going up against a major multinational is not nearly as enjoyable as playing too loud in Carnegie Hall. And yes, that's the same Harry Shearer that does about half the voices on The Simpsons, including Reverend Lovejoy and Principal Skinner. In case you didn't know, Spinal Tap even made an appearance on The Simpsons. All right! This morning, we were driving down Route 401. That's only four miles from my house! And we thought they knew how to rock in Shelbyville. But nobody rocks like Springfield! Spinal Tap are infamous for problems with their Stonehenge props. The most famous incident comes from the film in which the prop is undersized and nearly trampled by a dwarf or a little person, whatever you're supposed to call them nowadays. Here's Slash of Guns N' Roses fame with something rock stars call their own Spinal Tap moments. My favorite Spinal Tap moment, there was a gig that Guns N' Roses did in 1989 uh, the last show of a year and a half or two year tour that we did for Appetite for Destruction. And we were just shagged. And we, we were opening for NXS in Texas at Dallas Stadium. And it was uh, Ziggy Marley was on the bill, The Replacements, and uh, Iggy Pop. And it was, you know, outdoor thing. And we, we were just tired. We, we didn't get to sound check. And we thought, we'll just go out there and... and and just play and it was one of those gigs where I still have sort of nightmares about it where we just went out there and couldn't pull it together completely just fell apart couldn't hear what the other guy was doing everybody was just in a, in a, a completely different place and it was literally just horrible and I think we went on late and we left the stage early it started raining and it was just like just the most miserable gig and about a year later uh, I got some mail from the management office, and there was this envelope, and I opened it up, and it was a broken-and-a-half cassette of Appetite for Destruction, and some fan who was at that gig said, I'll never listen to you guys again. And I just, that was very Spinal Tap. As the story goes, the band was started by childhood friends David St. Hubbins and Nigel Tufnell during the 1960s. Originally named The Originals, then the new originals, to distinguish themselves from an existing group of the same name, they settled on the name The Thamesmen, finding success with their rhythm and blues single, Gimme Some Money. Stop wasting my time. You know what I want. You know what I need. 
They changed their name again to Spinal Tap and enjoyed limited success with the Flower Power Anthem. Listen to what the flower people say. Ultimately, the band became successful with heavy metal and produced several albums. The group was joined eventually by bassist Derek Smalls, played by Harry Shearer, and keyboardist Viv Savage, and a series of drummers, each whom mysteriously died in odd circumstances, including spontaneous human combustion and choking to death on the vomit of an unknown person. Their current drummer is Mick Shrimpton. Now, during the Flower People period, who was your drummer? Stumpy's replacement, Peter James Bond. He also died in mysterious circumstances. We were playing a, a, a festival, blues, jazz blues festival. Where was that? Well, blues like, jazz, really. Blues jazz festival. Was Miss the, it was the. Uh, it was in the Isle. Isle of Lucy. Lucy. The yeah. Isle of Lucy. Isle of Lucy. Jazz blues festival. And uh, it was tragic, really. He exploded on stage. Just like that. He just went up. He just was like a flash of green light. And that was it. Nothing was left. It was, face. Well, there was. It's that, true. This, this truly did happen. There was a little green globule on his drum seat. Like a stain, really. It was, it was a small stain. stain in a globule, yeah. actually. And you know, it was, several, you know, dozens of people spontaneously combust each year. It's just not really widely reported. Right. Yeah. This is Spinal Tap, the fictitious, over-the-top rock band from the early 80s that became so popular, they became an actual band with albums, posters, t-shirts, and rabid group followers. This comedy almost single-handedly created the category of mockumentary and inspired hundreds of films and TV shows that use a similar approach. TV shows like The Office or Parks and Rec, movies like Best in Show or Borat, might not have been made if not for this particular comedy. Since its release, Spinal Tap has received universal acclaim from critics and is widely regarded as one of the best films of 1984. It currently holds a 95% certified fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes, and in 2002, This Is Spinal Tap was deemed, quote, culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant by the Library of Congress and was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry. This is Our American Stories. And that's the story of This is Spinal Tap. And I can't help but just laugh every time I even say the words, This is Spinal Tap. And if you ever get a chance, I urge you, we beg you, if you haven't seen this movie, go and see it. It's Rob Reiner's best work. And Rob Reiner's done some great American movies. This day in history, in 1984, Spinal Tap was released as always. Are this days in history brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College? This is our American stories. This is a top to uh, you know what we use on stage, but it's very very special because if you can see, yeah, the numbers all go to eleven. Look right across the board. 
11, oh, 11, and most of 11, and then amps go up to 10. Exactly. Does that mean it's louder? Is it any louder? Well, it's one louder, isn't it? It's not 10. You see, most most blokes, you know, be playing at 10. You're on 10 here, all the way up, all the way up, yeah. all the way up. You're on 10 on your guitar. Where can you go from there? Where? I don't know. Nowhere, exactly. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. This is Our American Stories, where we bring you stories about everything in life, from the arts to sports to history, and stories from you. And this next story comes from our own Alex Cortez. Let's take a listen. Darcy Olson is a foster care mom, which led her to become the adoptive mother of three children. And now, with her organization Generation Justice, she's fighting for the rights of children in foster care. But today, Darcy brings us back to 2011, when she was the head of an Arizona think tank called the Goldwater Institute. We had a local municipality that wanted to keep a sports franchise where it was. And in this case, it was the city of Glendale. They wanted to keep the Coyotes hockey team in town, and they felt really strongly about that. They felt that having those Coyotes games would bring ticket holders and increase sales of ice cream and pendants and all kinds of things in the community. But the team was not profitable and was asking for a subsidy. From the government, which almost no businesses get, but a lot of professional sports teams with their wealthy owners do. The city of Glendale put together a deal where they were going to give $300 million to the Coyotes, essentially, to stay in the community. The public, many of them felt that that was not a good idea. But beyond that, the Arizona State Constitution had a prohibition that said you can't give tax dollars to a single entity like that. In other words, you know, if you spend public money, it has to be for the good of everybody. And so at the Goldwater Institute at the time, we brought that to the attention of the newspapers and to the team and and all the dealers and the politicians and simply said, if you go forward with this deal, we're not going to have any choice but to, to go to court and enforce this provision of the Arizona Constitution. And there was a lot of hue and cry about this. And before long, it was in all of the state newspapers and it was the talk of radio shows and Senator McCain was on air talking about it. And the commissioner of the NHL was talking about it live to full crowds at the stadium. And the Goldwater Institute was painted as the villain in this situation by some of these entities that stood to gain a lot of money from the taxpayers. So we were on the side of taxpayers, but publicly, it made it look like we were kind of the bad guys, you know, trying to kick this team out of the community, which, which of course, we were not trying to do. One day, I had my tiny little foster baby in my arms, and I lived out in the desert, and we would go out in, to watch the sunrise. 
and I would give her her first bottle of the day. And I walked out the front door of my home into a pool of blood. It was just all over the, the front area. And I looked down and there was a beheaded rabbit. And living in the desert, my first thought was this was a wild animal. This is just a kill and, and it was left there. And then as the fog lifted just a little bit from my early morning brain, I realized that it was a, it was a clear and clean decapitation and uh, the carcass had not been chewed up and that this had actually been intentionally left on the doorstep. And it didn't take but a second to realize that this was just one more warning that we were getting to, to stay out of this particular deal. A pretty scary warning to be personally targeted for your own home with a child in it to be trespassed upon in such a vulgar way. What was frightening about that was my home was really in, a, in an extremely rural area. And because at this time I was renting, my name wasn't even on the property paperwork, which meant that someone had followed me home. And of course I had this tiny little infant that I was in charge of. Darcy's very first foster child. And yet this harrowing experience didn't scare her off that path. That was my first one. I have many now, but. <laughs> it might have for a lot of us. And sadly, Darcy Olson's story isn't some isolated incident. Others who've simply taken public policy positions in the public square have been attacked too. We were traveling and a neighbor uh, told us that our house had been egged in a way that was done not the way kids do it. And frankly, kids in our area don't uh, egg, they teepee with toilet paper. But our house was egged and also there was an attempted break-in, which fortunately was not successful. This gentleman, John Tillman, is the head of the Illinois Policy Institute, a think tank that's working on Illinois' comeback from being the state where the greatest number of its own people are fleeing. I have a 17-year-old daughter. She turns 18 at the end of this month and a wife who is very concerned about these things and asking about her personal safety. It's a little bit sobering. You know, um, I think what, for me, what this drove home was the importance of privacy, of regular citizens being able to maintain their privacy. Um, you know, when it comes to the causes that they support, the things that they believe in, the vast majority of Americans are really great people. They do a lot with their money. They pay tithes to their churches. They, you know, they support all sorts of different causes. We have such a robust private sector. And unfortunately, there are some people out there who have loose screws. And when they get a hold of that information, they can really compromise your safety and the safety of your family. And that was really driven home to me uh, when, when this happened. Now I was in a situation where, because it was work-related, I could get private security and I could make sure that the baby would be okay and things like that. 
Now, Darcy was the head of the nonprofit Goldwater Institute, and thankfully, their financial supporters were willing to make this possible. But it's not possible for most of us. Most small businesses couldn't afford to pay for private security for an employee and aren't especially interested in paying for it either. Given that speaking out about the government isn't their actual business that takes care of their families. So the rest of us, when we speak out about government issues, could be even more at risk than Darcy and John were. And clearly, it's not an easy thing for them either. Somebody like me who's engaged in a public battle, you know, comes with the territory, as my daughter once told me, Dad, you asked for this, so you got to man up and toughen up. Uh, she was nine at the time, and I thought that was very good advice. But think about the person who, um, you know, might have an employer who might not agree with their political views, either on the left or the right, or somebody who goes to a church but feels that some of the teachings of that church aren't in keeping with them, and they want to advocate for, oh, it could be for gay rights or traditional marriage, either side. In U.S. history, we have a really long tradition of having robust discussions of all kinds of contentious issues. We go all the way back to slavery, for instance, or the 19th Amendment and, you know, the right of women to vote and you name it. And people have always been contentious. But, you know, when you have, like you have today, you have people who are just not quite in the rational game and they can't appreciate that discussion for what it is. and Instead of discussion, what they want to do is intimidate or threaten or maim. It becomes critical that we have those privacy protections built in. That is critical to a free society. Privacy protections that allow us to speak out about the affairs of government. In newspapers, advertisements, donations, you name it. While keeping our identity private. America's history of protecting anonymous speech goes as far back as those very contested discussions which Darcy mentioned. Thomas Paine threw gas on the fire of the American Revolution with his anonymously written common sense. Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and John Jay in arguing for the ratification of their drafted constitution for this new nation wrote the Federalist Papers anonymously under the pseudonym of Publius, and someone then anonymously wrote a rebuttal under the name of the Federal Farmer. We still don't know who did it. The Supreme Court has repeatedly ruled that the right to anonymous speech is protected by the First Amendment of the Constitution. And yet, there is a movement afoot to force the disclosure of donors to nonprofits. Several states have had ballot measures to do it, and South Dakota, Missouri, and Washington have passed it. Think about uh, individuals who live a relatively quiet and shy and retiring life, and if these kind of trends continue, they're going to have to report their personal name, address, uh, perhaps their phone number and the amount they gave to all the different nonprofit causes to the government and then have it be publicly reported. Imagine the wackos that can go mine that data and start showing up and knocking on your door. 
I don't think we want an America where participation in democracy is oppressed because of public reporting of private giving. I think it's an outrage and against the very founding of the country. For our American stories, I'm Alex Cortez. And great job, Alex. And to learn more about the importance of anonymous speech and to take action to defend it, go to unitedforprivacy.com. That's unitedforprivacy.com. And folks, if the government wants to know your name and why you're given to what you give it, you got to always ask yourself, why do they want to know? Who wants to know my name? And next thing, are they going to ask for a name when it comes to who we voted for, too? Big questions here, and we answer them here on Our American Stories. our American stories and for the hour the making of Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas The Godfather was a classic The Sopranos wow what TV but you want to talk a movie that left a mark Goodfellas is a 1990 American biographical crime film directed by Martin Scorsese it's an adaptation of the 1986 non-fiction book Wise Guy by Nicholas Pileggi the film narrates the rise and fall of mob associate Henry Hill and his friends over a period Well, almost 25 years, from 1955 to 1980. But after wrapping his first feature film, Mean Streets, in 1973, Martin Scorsese never saw himself making another gangster movie. That is, until he picked up the book by Nicholas Pileggi called Wise Guy. Here's Scorsese and Pileggi on how Goodfellas was set in motion. Having dealt with that world to a certain extent, I felt, therefore, I never really wanted to touch upon that world again. But... I found that the the style of the book was so interesting, and I try to say, boy, if I can make a film like the style of this book, because what's the point of making another gangster picture? There have been several books about mob bosses, but it was like getting a hold of a soldier in Napoleon's army. That's who I wanted. I wanted to know how it worked inside. Detail, detail, detail. Everything is detail. I was interested in the minutiae of how to live as a wise guy. I wanted to get into the, the frame of mind of a guy who works that way every day. And you also had the voice of Henry. So much of that book was just his telling the story. And Marty called, and he said, uh, hello? He said, yeah, my my name is Marty Scorsese. He said, I'm a film director, a movie director, I think he said. And he said, do you know? And I said, I know who you are. And he said, well, I'm calling you because he said, I just read your book. And he said, I've been looking for this book for years. I said, well, I've been waiting for this phone call all my life. So he said, I want to do it. But he wanted to write it with me, but he couldn't make a deal with me. So I said, don't worry about it. The deal with you is on the phone now. We will make this movie. Don't you worry about anything else. I hadn't put my name on a script since Mean Streets, and I wanted to create an exhilaration of that kind of life. Now, when you're working with Marty, of course, he already sees the movie. I didn't, but it was all right. He brought me along. You know, I did most of the typing, I don't, but he writes longhand. So I would type, and then it would come out, and then he would scratch these little things on it, and we would work on it, and, we'd, and, and the dialogue would be bounced back and forth between us. So we would, we would develop scene after scene. In this scene, this is what's going to happen, then we go to this. And he also said, put in the corner, put in the corner, and he would mention a piece of music. I want that music here. And anyone who has seen a Scorsese movie knows how much the music drives the movie. Nowhere is this fact better exemplified than in his Goodfellas picture. For Scorsese, who carries a music library in his head, he hears the music while he's penning the script. 
you know, we did our jobs and, you know, we had great makeup and they made us look all whacked out. But talk about music and editing. Everything, everything gonna be all right this morning. Let's go shopping. Marty had such great ideas about how to put music to, to some of those images. When we were writing, there's that scene where Bob De Niro is standing at the bar with a cigarette and he's looking at Manny and he's going to kill him. And you know he's going to kill him. And Marty has this shot and he gets closer and closer and closer and Bob's eyes get more wolf-like. It was just the most terrifying picture. And as I'm typing that stuff, because I'm the typist, he says, put in cream, put in cream. I said, what cream? Just, just write, write down cream. I said, right, what's, what cream? Who are you talking about? Just put it, just put it, put it, put it. Do me a favor, just put it. So I typed in cream. Well, it turns out, while we're typing that scene, he's already listening to the music. So now, you can't, I can't interpret that. I can't tell you where that, it's all intuitive. It's all part of whatever comes out of him. Now I look at that scene, when I see it, it's just, it's an amazing scene with that music and that close-up of Bob. Conway, uh, the De Niro character, he decides at that point, being annoyed by all these people around him asking for their cut of the job, the Lufthansa robbery and all that stuff, why should he give it to anybody? Why shouldn't he just keep it all for himself? The only way to do that is to give uh, his friend, you know, Tommy, Joe Pesci's uh, character, a little sort of nod wink, in a sense. You see that in his eyes, and we shot that, I think, at 32 frames a second or 36 frames, just to get, I don't know. I didn't know what I was going to get, but then when I saw the rushes, I saw that gleam in his eyes, and I synced that to the guitar from Sunshine of Love right to that point. Some of it, he just he put into the film in the editing room. He has a deep sense of how music should go with a film, and by that I don't mean that, that, uh, that it should go easily. Sometimes it's a shocking choice. Uh, but it works like crazy. I kind of see everything with music, especially the juxtaposition of the type of music you're listening to, to the images that you see out the window, and that sort of thing. And I, I said, that's the way music should be in a movie. That was the first time I had ever seen anyone shot. I remember where you ever heard first people. Oh, uh, usually, yeah, usually a piece of music. I remember when I first heard it. Where, with your mother in a butcher and, shop. Or, yeah, yeah. And um, he'll carry those pieces of music around for years and then suddenly find exactly the right place for that piece. Each shot was designed to certain bars of Layla. We had the music already played on the set to get the right rhythm for the movement or for the length of the scene. And when I got in the editing room, then I had to make sure that I was trying to get exactly what he wanted. He was very specific about how he wanted the music to cut. Let's try this. It's really on the way. Yeah. Right here. We're starting. Goodfellas was one of those films that uh, I felt we rode like a horse. It was so beautifully scripted and shaped by Nick Pledge and Marty that it had its own energy, it had its own drive, and as Marty was laying it down, it just had an incredible feeling to it. So we were sort of riding it and trying to stay on top of it and stay ahead of it if we could, but it was so strong. It had such a rhythm. Oh, you broke your cherry. 
And when we come back, more on the making of Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas. This is our American story. And as always, we take you on some diversions and some side trips on some of the most iconic artists, movies, music, and Goodfellas. It doesn't get better. More after these messages. I'll soon be with you, my love. Give you my dog surprise. I'll be with you, darling, soon. I'll be with you when the stars start falling. Stands on golden sand and watches the ships that go sailing. This is our American stories, the making of Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas. We continue that story. The three main characters were played by Joe Pesci, Robert De Niro, who got the role after Al Pacino turned it down, and Ray Liotta, who only had four movies under his belt but beat out Sean Penn for the role as Henry Hill. Paul Sorvino, who was cast as mob boss Paul Cicero, had no problem finding the voice and walk of his character, but found it challenging finding what he called that kernel of coldness and absolute hardness that is antithetical to my nature, except when my family is threatened. Here is Sorvino on how he struggled finding the dark realities of his character. That I didn't think I could do it. Because it was not the kind of role that I felt I really had an affinity for. The externals were easy, a middle-aged Italian man. The difficulty was in the lethality that I felt I didn't possess. And so even though I wanted to do it, I was sort of faking when I went to the meeting and giving Martin the impression that I knew exactly what to do with it when I had no idea what to do with it. But I wanted so much to be in a Scorsese movie. I guess he just figured I was capable of it. And uh, it went, it was about two months uh, in preparation to try to get this quality that I knew it called for. I was kind of agonizing over it for a couple of months. I was thinking, I'm going to ruin this movie. I was looking for something to get out of it. Until two days before we started production, by virtue of constantly searching to find where that kind of quality that killers have. Uh, I was preparing to go out one night, uh, passed by the mirror to check for spinach in the teeth, and uh, I jumped back. I, I literally frightened myself. I saw a look in my eyes that frightened me. And who was that? I said, that's Paulie. And once I found it, the role became just a duck in water. It just was so easy to do. Now, what Paulie and the organization does is offer protection for people who can't go to the cops. That's it. That's all it is. They're like the police department for wise guys. <laughs> in order to create the greatest degree of truth, reality, and believability in his scenes, Scorsese is infamous for putting his actors through improvisations. Here's the Goodfellas team discussing this playful procedure. So much of what Scorsese does is in the way he directs. Uh, and so you see something entirely different up on the screen often than is in that script. If I felt the scene could be opened up, I usually did that with the actors in rehearsal. So we would rehearse 35, 40 minutes a scene. Uh, and they were all improvisations. They were very loosely around the script. Just sort of what, would, what was happening. Not improvising by writing lines. I mean improvising 
behaviorally. He always says, don't act like these people. Behave like them. You know me. I would like to help you out. I hope so. Sonny, tell him what we talked about. He knows so well what actors need and how to help them. And then he'll see something he likes and he'll come over and say, you know, um, you know what you said in that other improvisation? Why don't you say that to him again? Or, or um, let him have it. Now go home and get your f***ing shine box. Mother f***ing mother, You, you piece of He uses the power of the verb. Acting is doing something. I threaten, I charm, I beg. And what Martin does in the improvisation is encourage the doing of things. Well, that merely means stay with the other fellow and deal with what he's giving you. Why, what are you, stupid? What's the matter with you? I apologize. What's the matter with you? Sorry. What the f*** is the matter with you? You feel like you're a real collaborator. It makes you feel that way, and in a certain sense you are, because you're giving all the good things that you have. And you see anybody f***ing around with that you're going to tell me, right? Yeah. That means anybody. He knows what he wants to do, but you really feel like you're creating and he's letting you go uh, to do what, what, what you've come up with. That's just the way he is. He, he's very open to a lot of uh, ideas from anybody. That was, for an actor, it was like the jackpot. And that was Lorraine Bracco talking, and it was the jackpot for everyone who acted in this movie. But the thing about improvisation is, for Scorsese at least, it's just a tool, a tool that is used by writers to chisel out a very detailed script of dialogue for the actors. It can be said that Joe Pesci owns not only the most famous improvised scenes in movie-making history, but the most famous scene. Here's Goodfellas star Joe Pesci. You don't improvise on camera when we're shooting. They all think that Marty just doesn't do anything, that he lets the actor say, okay, go ahead, and he sits there like this, you know, and, and enjoys it. You know, It's not true. I mean, it's so crazy to think that you can go in there and make a movie like that. It has to be structured. You're still saying a script. <laughs> See, I wish I was big just once. <laughs> You're a big cop. You're really funny. Really funny. Uh, what do you mean I'm funny? <laughs> It's funny, you know, it's a good story, it's funny, you're a funny guy. That scene in uh, uh, I Make You Laugh, uh, you know, I didn't write that, I get credit for that all the time, people want to give me awards. Oh, you wrote that, I never wrote that. Joe made it up. What? Just, you know, you're, you're funny. You mean, so? let me understand this, I'm funny how? I mean, funny like I'm a clown, I amuse you, I make you laugh. What do you mean funny? Funny how? How am I funny? When Joe told the story that, that it happened to him about you're a funny guy, except he was on the receiving end of it, uh, we then improved it for a while in rehearsal and then locked it in. I'm not just... Do you know how you tell a story? What? No, no, I don't know. You said it. How do I know? You said I'm funny. And that was very carefully worked on within our rehearsal period. I was able, as a the co-writer, to record several takes, maybe four to five takes between Ray and Joe of this dialogue. I then took that and rewrote that, which was then inserted into the script. Funny how? I mean, what's funny about it? <laughs> it was interesting how he shot that sequence. He's shooting it in a medium shot, not in a close-up. And the reason I always tell film students this, that it's very important, is that, first of all, he knew the scene was powerful enough that he did not need close-ups. And secondly, what he really wanted to show was how the people around Joe Pesci and Ray Liotta were gradually 
changing the looks on their faces as, as the sense of dread began to creep into what was supposed to be a casual conversation. And suddenly, it is wonderful how you see their faces change. And he was very adamant that that's how he wanted to shoot it. Oh, oh Anthony. He's a big boy. He knows what he said. What'd you say? Right. Funny how. And you just watch his body language. And you know it's dead serious. And it could turn on a, a split second. But hard to cut. Marty and I spent a long time figuring out how long to wait until Ray Liotta actually says, come on, Tommy. Funny. What the f*** is so funny about me? Tell me. Tell me what's funny. Get the f*** out of here, Tommy. <laughs> Your mother f- I almost had him. I almost had him. Stuttering, yeah, stuttering prick yet. Frankie, was he shaking? And all the laughter you hear on the track is me and them and everybody. Because <laughs> we had to create an atmosphere of, a, of, of that kind of a moment on the set. And, of course, a lot of the guys standing around had no idea it was Joe was going to improvise at that point. So there were, a lot of those reactions were absolutely pure. The backstory to the story you just heard is that while working in a restaurant, a young Pesci apparently told a mobster that he was funny, a compliment that was met with a less than enthusiastic response. Pesci relayed the anecdote to Scorsese, who decided to include it in the film. Scorsese didn't include the scenes in the shooting script so that Pesci and Laota's interactions could elicit genuine surprise and genuine reactions from the supporting cast. By the way, the F-bomb is dropped 296 times during the film, averaging twice per minute, making it the 12th most F-bomb-laden film ever released. The script only called for the word to be used 70 times, by the way, but much of the dialogue was improvised during the shooting, where the expletives just, well, piled up. Roughly half of them are by Joe Pesci. After Pesci's mother saw the film, she said she liked it, but asked if he had to swear so much. And when we come back, we're going to dig into more of the story behind the story of the making of one of the great American gangster films, one of the great American films. And by the way, listening to that scene and remembering what it looked like, that, that nervousness that turned into laughter. And by the way, if you've ever met one of these wise guys in your life, they live off the power of turning on the dime how your day's going. And that's what they love. They'll kill you. They'll make you laugh. But it's all about them. And they get this minutia beautifully in Goodfellas. More of the story behind the story of the making of Goodfellas. This is Our American Stories. Like the fella once said, ain't that a kick in the head? The room was completely black. I hugged her and she hugged back Like the sailor said, quote, ain't that a hole in a boat My head keeps spinning I go to sleep and keep grinning If this is just the beginning My life is gonna be beautiful I've sunshine enough to spread it's just like the fella said Tell me quick Another kick In the head I couldn't feel Any better Or I'd be sick Oh yeah 
Oh yeah. Everything, everything, everything gonna be all right this morning. Oh yeah. This is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation. Actually, we continue the storytelling of the making of Goodfellas. And we just heard a great story about an improvised scene that became a part of a script that ultimately became, I think, the best scene in the entire movie, that showdown between Ray Liotta and Joe Pesci while the guys were hanging out in a bar and just having some fun, and it turned dark and it turned ugly, but that was just Joe Pesci messing around with everybody. But no one there knew it was going to happen. And no one in the audience did too. And that's what made that scene so good. And then there's Scorsese's legendary Steadicam shot. Just like the training montage in Rocky, the Steadicam is responsible for another unforgettable movie scene. It's one of the few shots in the history of cinema readily identifiable by name, instantly conjuring the image of Goodfellas. Low-level mobster Henry Hill, played by Liotta, leads his future wife Karen, played by Lorraine Bracco, and by extension the audience through the back entrance of New York's legendary Copacabana nightclub as Steadicam operator Larry McConkie glides along behind them. This legendary Steadicam shot through that nightclub kitchen was an accident. Scorsese, who didn't even like using Steadicams at first, had been denied permission to go through the front door. And so... He had to improvise another plan. So how long did one of the film's most famed tracking shots take to pull off? It was in the can before lunch, which isn't to say it was easy. After all, the uncut shot lasts a remarkable three minutes and four seconds. Thank you, sir. All right, see you later. Thanks. What are you doing? You're leaving your car? I never even knew when we were making it what that scene was. I never knew. I had I was clueless. I'd never even seen a steady cam. And that doesn't exist in the book. But it does in just a couple of lines. Except a couple of lines in the book in the hands of the director, that's where you begin to see a nonfiction book in detail really blossom into a kind of art. How you doing? Good, good. What's up? There you go. The whole idea is that it had to be done in one take, so you don't feel that it was a series of cuts or that there was a separation between him and the world that he was trying to get into. The camera flowed through and just glided through this world. Just all, all the doors opened to him and everything just slipped away. It was like heaven. And then to emerge like a king and queen, this was the highest he could aspire to. It was kind of tricky also to get all the actions right because Marty is so very accurate about every single timing. You know, what the people do in the kitchen. The guy with the table comes at the right time and brings the table over. All these things are very important. But as far as I remember, we shot the scene only eight times and it was not even a full day. But we wanted it really in one shot and we got it in one shot. Take my wife, please. And that voice you just heard was that of comedian Henny Youngman. If you remember the scene, they get that great seat in the hottest club in town. And boy, Lorraine Bracco thinks she struck gold. And Henry Hill, he's living large. And Henny Youngman, of course, is the king of one-liners who played himself in that club scene. 
The reason that three-minute shot had to be redone eight times was not because of complications choreographing it, but because it ends on Youngman. But Youngman kept fluffing his lines, spoiling the close of the scene. Scorsese's attention to detail can be seen in all of his films, especially in Goodfellas. Here's Scorsese on the set of Goodfellas doing a wardrobe inspection on the actor who plays the young Henry Hill. Uh, the kid doesn't look like a gangster yet. He has to look. His shoes are going to be shined. You got a pinky ring, kid? Yeah. Yeah, that's better. Mm-hmm. I would like it just a little bit. We don't have any stays in the collar? Yeah, this one doesn't call for No stays, stays Christine? He was very obsessed about the collars that the mafia wear, where they're almost closed over the tie. And only his mother and father could could actually press those collars properly. So Marty would reject actor after actor who didn't have the right pressed collar, and they would be sent back, and his mother would properly iron it. He tied my tie every day. The way he wanted the knot was very specific, and I guess from when he was growing up, and every day he would tie my tie and, and, and get, the, uh, get the knot right. I think he, you know, he's very careful to make sure that it's believable. You know, he's all, he'll often say to me in dailies, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. It's the beautiful evocation of food. And he loves, for example, very tight shots of keys being put into locks and or doorknobs being turned. Because there are things that we do a thousand times a day but aren't ever celebrated in quite that way. They're distilled images, and they have a meaning. They have a real meaning for us, but that we don't even realize because we do them so many times a day. And what's so beautiful and dangerous about Goodfellas is Martin Scorsese's ability to get us, the audience, to sympathize somehow with the bad guys. But he doesn't leave us there. Scorsese's truthful portrayal of the human heart leaves us at the end of the film with real moral clarity. But the only way you can really be truthful about it is to really not be inhibited by anything. What do you mean, don't be like... I think it explains what the world is really like. And part of what's so interesting is that it starts out as a lot of fun. We're as bad as they are. We're happy to see the postman go in the oven. And all of a sudden, of course, when Spider gets shot, it all turns and it changes. I mean, he shoots that poor kid in the foot. You should know then, these are not, this is not the way to live. You don't be sucked in by these guys. Because it's only going to end one way before the witness protection program. It only ended one way. Death. It was the most frightening thing. I mean, I was out of my body for a minute, you know. I had to put myself in a frame of mind to really kill someone. I made them put full loads in the gun, in the 45, because I wanted to hear the echo. I wanted to feel the gun really kick like a real 45. The silence after the last shot rang out was more deafening than the gun. I think I brought more of almost like a documentary attitude towards it. I wanted to show you uh, the star of the movie is a way of life, not a character. Somebody uh, commented that uh, it's like Scarface without Scarface, but that's what it is. Yeah, we don't need Scarface in the film. You know, it's the way of life. If you grow up around that, um, what I wanted to show you was um, the danger of the exuberance of that kind of life at first, you see. The danger of the exuberance, the ex- danger of the excitement. When you're young, you think you're, you you're going to live forever, and you, you, know, you, you think you're tough, and you could take a few more shots in the head than somebody else could. And so you, you think you're tougher than the other person. Well, eventually, if you don't use your brain, 
you know, you're not going to wind up anywhere. And I think the, the danger of the excitement of that lifestyle is what I grew up around, and I saw a lot of people uh, disappear because of that. Marty wants you to figure things out yourself. He wants you to come to the film and you to look at it and decide how you feel about it. He doesn't want to tell you what to think. He wants you to experience it. And I think that's what makes the film great. There's no judgment on these characters. We're the ones to judge. He just gets it right. And if you've ever grown up near mobsters, and I've spent quite a bit of time, if you grow up near Newark, New Jersey, when I grew up, or liked playing horses like I did and go to an OTB in Brooklyn, there they were. And everyone loved them, but more importantly, everyone was afraid of them. And you always heard a story, and then every once in a while you'd see it. You'd see him beat the you-know-what out of somebody almost to death, and it would scare the life out of you. And they loved that. They loved it. I knew that wasn't my life. It was none of my friend's life. We stayed far away. We're not attracted to it at all. But many, many impressionable young men drawn right into the life. No better movie about the life. I think even better than The Godfather. Because it wasn't as romantic. These guys are rough. And it's ugly. And when they're digging ditches and throwing guys in, uh, into a ditch, shooting a kid in the foot over nothing... Uh, you get the, the real sense that these are some pretty bad dudes and that gun could turn on you in any minute. When we come back, our final segment on the making of Goodfellas. This is Our American Stories. Your love is all that ever mattered. It's everything. our American stories, the final segment, our hour-long celebration of the making of Goodfellas. And by the way, in the first season of The Sopranos, Tony's nephew Christopher, played by Michael Imperioli, shoots a bakery employee in the foot for simply making him wait. As he leaves, the wounded bread seller yells, he shot my foot! And Christopher replies, it happens. It's a nod to Imperioli's character Spider getting shot in the foot by Joe Pesci a decade earlier in Goodfellas. And if you remember, that kid working at the bar got shot in the foot for nothing. And that's, that's what both of those stories are about. I've got to also add that The Sopranos is really about the fall of the mob post-Rico. Because in the 80s, Rudy Giuliani came to town and there was a statute called the Rico Statute, which was an organized crime statute, which allowed everyone in the organized crime enterprise to go to jail for the crime of one because they acted in concert. And this was how they finally got the bosses, the underbosses, and everybody. And it was going to take an Italian to bring him down. And it was an Italian guy named Rudy Giuliani who was then a U.S. attorney. And he was fearless. And there were death threats, as you can imagine. But Giuliani, Giuliani fiercely remembered his father getting shaken down by mobsters and also hated the impression 
this was creating in Italian-American neighborhoods, and nobody was more a victim of Italian mobsters than Italian merchants who either paid the freight and had their hard work and dollars stolen from them or, well, bombs blew up. And my grandfather owned a pizzeria in Brooklyn, and he always had to pay the freight for the garbage, and he had to order a certain kind of cheese. And I would say, Grandpa, why? And he'd say, it's just the way it is. And they basically stole about a third of his profits every year. And then they'd give a little bit to the church, and they'd have a feast of San Gennaro, and, and everybody would pretend to like the mob, but they hated the mob, and they were afraid of the mob. And it was a lot of fake respect they got on the streets because they were just afraid of getting shot in the foot. For a film renowned for violence, Goodfellas has a relatively low body count compared to today's standard, with a count of just 10, which isn't terribly bloody when compared to the 255 body count in Saving Private Ryan. Once the scenes were shot, it was up to Thelma Schoonmaker, Scorsese's editor, to create movie magic. We've been hearing from her throughout this piece, but here she is with Scorsese and Goodfellas producer Erwin Winkler discussing how the uncharacteristic editing at the end of the film shaped the film. A great deal of Marty's movies are made in the editing room, particularly The Last Day as a Wise Guy, as we call it. The Last Day as a Wise Guy is, is a sequence that I think came together particularly in the editing room because we could... Um, we found that we could express the state of mind that Ray Liotta was in at that time, being coked up and completely out of control. It was written in a lot of small montages, but it was never really visualized uh, on the script uh, the way you see it on film. For example, when Ray Liotta plunks the guns, the camera swish pans up to him. I just always enjoy all the strange jump cutting that we did, you know, uh, Ray Liotta making veal cutlets and, and how we just uh, jumped around and just experimented and just had a hell of a lot of fun uh, violating every rule there is. During the previews, I got annoyed. The audience got annoyed, so I made it even faster, more relentless in a way. We can make it even more jagged. We can make it more fractured. And so we started doing more jump cuts. What I love about it is the annoyance at having to go bring the guns to Jimmy, knowing damn well Jimmy's not going to buy them. Stop with those drugs. They're making your mind into mush. That should put you in a position to say, what am I doing in my life? No, he's annoyed that I know Jimmy's going to make me bring this around. He's not going to want I'm going to put him back in the trunk. I'm going to have to go over here. I've got to stir the sauce. I swear this helicopter's following me, but that can pay attention to that. I think it is. No, it isn't. Picking up his brother. Drugs, coke, girlfriends. They're hiding guns in garbage pails. And it goes on like that. Everything seemed to be of the same importance. All the same level. He could not differentiate by that point. <laughs> Total madness. <laughs> And it was total madness, and Henry Hill's life was spiraling out of control, chased and followed every, at every turn. Goodfellas was released on September 19, 1990. Here's the initial reaction from movie critics Siskel and Ebert. Since 1976, when he directed Taxi Driver, Martin Scorsese has stood, I think, alone at the top of the art of film directing in the world today. His Raging Bull was generally conceded to be the best film of the decade of the 1980s, and now with Goodfellas, Scorsese has scored another magnificent achievement. This is a great film, a film about Scorsese's favorite subjects, the great tragic subjects like avarice and jealousy, murder and guilt, and it ranks with The Godfather in his portrait of the crime syndicate. I have never seen 
even a movie by Scorsese that really wrapped me up so much into the world of the emotions of these people. A day, two days after the movie was over, I still myself felt guilty, I think identifying with the guilt of the Ray Liotta character, guilt not only that he did bad things, but the worst kind of guilt, which is the guilt that he still wanted to do them. He wishes he was still doing them. What I love about the film and what I like about Scorsese's work is he takes, in a very theatrical, exciting way, moral stands. Mm -hmm. He makes The Last Temptation of Christ. He makes Raging Bull about, he makes films about sinners mm -hmm. and finds the sa saints and sinners and sinners and saints. Mm -hmm. And this guy, he's saying about the mob, these guys are scum. Mm -hmm. He says it. That's so refreshing in an artful, beautiful way. It's a fascinating movie. It's a it's a great well, American film. Okay, I've seen it twice. I'm going back lots more times. And what okay. I'll go back for is small things, editing scenes, uh, the, the way he jumps in on dialogue. And my wife will tell you every time Goodfellas comes on, she can count me out of anything she has planned for the next two hours or three. It's just the way it is. Uh, if you watch it from the beginning, you can't stop. But come in the middle of it and you can't stop. Here's co-writer Nicholas Pileggi recalling how Martin Scorsese himself reacted to his own film on opening night. I mean, when Godfellas opened, uh, it was the opening night. And I'm there, Nora's with me, and Marty is sitting next to me, and Helen's on the other. And, and uh, finally it goes on, and it's Zigfield, and we're in black tie. And we're watching it, I get, I get this elbow. I says, what? See, we should have cut that scene. That's, he's talking too much. We get, there's Marty. We're in tuxedos. It's the opening night. You can't do anything. Forget it. Sit back and enjoy it. And he laughed, and we watched the rest of the movie. But even then, on the opening night, he's thinking about how he could play around with it. Yeah, and that's what all artists are. They're never really happy. They just got to move on to the next thing because they want to tinker with a little more. After the film's premiere, the real Henry Hill, who was played by Ray Liotta, was so proud of the movie that he went around revealing his true identity and boasting that the film was about him. He only had one problem. He was in the witness protection program. The FBI had to remove him from where he was and give him a new location. In conclusion, here's Leonardo DiCaprio articulating what almost all of us who have watched Goodfellas felt an experience. Goodfellas is one of those movies that whenever it comes on television, there goes my next few hours. I'm absolutely going to watch that. And that's what's so powerful about that movie in particular. And, and Marty's work for that, for that matter. There's something about the way he connects you as an audience member and envelops you completely into another world that you become entranced by it and the rest of the world dissolves away and that's the magic of really making movies the goodfellas magic has made such an impact on the culture that it has even penetrated into the cooking world which is no surprise considering the amount of time scorsese spends shooting and discussing food in the movie but contrary to the posh jailhouse scene where Paulie advocates using a razor blade to cut garlic so thin that it will liquefy with a little oil, the technique in reality isn't very practical. The garlic tends to brown too quickly. The key step is that you must keep the oil at lukewarm temperature. Instead of a razor blade, it's usually easier to mash it with a fork. Still, certain Italian cookbooks suggest you slice the cloves good fellas thin and to cook them low and slow and by the way just go to youtube 
and Google the scene where they're cooking because there isn't a better scene in the history of movies about eating and food. And this is what Scorsese was great at doing, piling on these life details that bring you into the world, envelop you, and carry you away. And uh, let's take a listen if Jesse's got that. In prison, dinner was always a big thing. We had a pasta course, and then we had a meat or a fish. Paulie did the prep work. He was doing a year for contempt, and he had this wonderful system for doing the garlic. He used a razor, and he used to slice it so thin that it used to liquefy in the pan with just a little oil. It's a very good system. Vinny was in charge of the tomato sauce. Ah, got the smell. That treat, the kinds of meat and meatballs. You've got the veal, beef, and pork. Ah, good, but you got to have the pork. Oh, that's, that's the flavor. I felt he used too many onions, but it was still a very good sauce. And there you have it, and that's why we love it. It was the life. Scorsese's right. It wasn't about any one character. It was the life that was the main character. And, boy, at the end of that movie... Henry Hill is just at a loss. He just can't believe it's over. That's the world he chose, and it's the world we're transfixed by. This is Lee Habib, the making of Goodfellas. Great job on this, Greg, as always, on these pieces. No one does them better on the culture, on the movies. Again, this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the story of the making of Goodfellas. Goodfellas.